after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen the star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly uh, and asserted from them, I got to start that one over again. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secret, secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to the rest to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, so there's a story that's probably pretty familiar to you, at least in some way you've been acquainted with it. But our story is probably limited, too, because of the imagery that's been so commonly available in our lives. For example, in our church and in your home and places around town, you see the little nativity scene, right? That's what it's usually referred to as. I know there's a lot of words we use in church that people hear, but they don't really know where we got the word from. And being a word nerd, I should tell you what I've, I've learned. You know, when we talk about nativity, it really just means he... He went from where he was to join the natives, and we're the natives, okay? So that's really all it means. It's just the nativity means the beginning of his living with us and among us and like us. He became like us in our nature, and nature and native are words that come from the same derivative. So our nativity scenes show us a picture of Mary and Joseph and a manger and a little baby and maybe an angel and some animals and, and three guys, three kings probably, since they have crowns with gifts. And from that image that we've seen all of our lives, we've assumed that we understand the story we just heard to be as it appears. But as I've tried to tell you over the last few weeks, this event was far more grand and majestic than anybody really gives credit to. It's just unbelievable to think, for example, that the sky opened up in a manner of speaking so that all the heavenly realm was visible for a few minutes and all the hosts of heaven were visible. It's unbelievable to imagine this star that appeared consistently and always where Jesus was. It's, it's difficult to imagine 
how people would go to a cave, maybe, probably, to a place where animals were kept and worship a little baby laying in a feed trough. It's unbelievable in so many ways, and yet it's true. And then there was this rumor going around town that this truly was the Messiah, even old Simeon, that beautiful, grand old man who liked to hang out at the temple that everyone loved and admired had said from his ancient eyes, I have seen the Messiah, now I can die in peace. I mean, there was a lot going on that day. And then there's the whole historical political scene. The fact is the Romans had possession of the land at that time, but only had possessed it for a little while. Their conquests had only recently taken them to this little strip of land that separates two major land masses and several major kingdoms. And the Romans had gained control of it after it had been temporarily seized by the Jews, a group called the Maccabeans. And if you grew up in the Catholic Church, you've got a book in there about the Maccabeans in your Catholic Bible. Those are called the Apocryphal books. I can tell you more about that on another day in another location. But for now, understand that temporarily the Jews had successfully revolted against the Greeks who had once controlled that region in as much power and authority as the Romans were now exercising. And then before that, it was a unified Greece. So for a time, there was only certain Greeks who were in control of that land, but then they had division internally, and it turned into uh, a divided Greek kingdom that eventually lost control of Israel. But before that, a unified Greek kingdom controlled that land, and before that, the Persians controlled that land. And the Persians and Babylonians are basically interchangeable. Persia would have encompassed an area that is roughly Iran and Iraq and those areas of that country, and Babylon was the central city. In the same way, we refer to the Romans, and then really there's a city of Rome, but in fact, we're talking about Italy and the Mediterranean. So think of the Persians that way. Now, you may be wondering why all this history. Well, these, these wise men that showed up, there's a lot more to them than you think. These Persian wise men came from a culture that had quite a lot in common with Judaism and the people of Israel, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that when they had become the most powerful empire in the world, and they conquered Israel and they drove the people of Israel out of their nation in order to not to, to, to just wipe them out, but the best way to conquer another people is to disperse them and then take as many of their intelligent, educated, uh, sophisticated leader people, whatever, take as many of them back to the homeland as you can and teach them how to be like you. That way you've kind of wiped out their identity as a people, and they're far less likely to rebel if they have no guiding identity. Reading the book of Daniel, and you can do that with the Wednesday night group starting this Wednesday uh, that I'm leading on uh, Wednesday nights at 6, you will see a great deal of that story expressed. But speaking of Daniel, 
probably one of the most important figures in the Old Testament, definitely part of the top five or so. Daniel was, spent most of his life in Persia or Babylon, and he was as devout as they come and was respected for that. And it is the Magi that have sort of stemmed from Daniel. The fact is, is the Magi, their word, Magi, is another one of those that's rooted in another word you might remember uh, hearing, the word magistrate. If you've ever heard the word magistrate, what that word describes is someone who has both political and religious authority and they exercise them both simultaneously in certain countries and certain communities where the word magistrate is used, it would uh, be kind of like a justice of the peace, you know, on a small scale, someone who can do weddings and things like that, but can also do politically important things like uh, processing certain documentation and so forth. And magistrates on the scale of the Magi, though, were quite influential and quite significant in the way that they affected the way the culture developed in Persia. And so a great following of Daniel's way of sort of mixing his hardcore Jewish faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the political sort of nuances of Persia and Babylon, by him being able to do that, he created sort of the prototype of the Magi. So these Magi are really remarkable people. They are well known by the time of Jesus' birth for being incredibly influential in political and social development. They are not so much stargazers and uh, definitely not astrologers, which is a very different, different thing. Now, don't think astrologer and then imagine astronomy. There's a difference between astronomy and astrology. Astrology is a kind of cultic use of, of uh, signs in the sky. Astronomy is simply the observation of the stars in that part of the cosmos. Now, these guys had a great depth of understanding of the cosmos. But they were also well known for their incredible ability to interpret dreams, dreams, which you might recall Daniel was pretty darn good at as well. And their interpretations of things and their solid moral grounding combined with their political savvy meant that generally people wouldn't become kings or great political leaders unless they had the endorsement of the Magi. This was widely known by the time of the birth of Jesus. It was certainly something that was understood in the very diverse culture of Israel. Remember what I just told you about how many ways that piece of land has been occupied and, and fought over and still to this day, so that there's a very diverse population in Israel. So that means that the customs and the cultures of the other various empires and nations are not unknown in Israel. And this is why, and I'm getting to the real point here, this is why when the Magi showed up at Herod's palace, they created such a disturbance. 
Here are some of the reasons that they created the disturbance that they did. Number one, there would have been a large contingent of Magi and their supporting staff and implements. They would have come from Persia with a small army to protect them. There is no reason to think that there would be less than a thousand people in this entourage that's moving across what was known as Asia in those days down toward the Fertile Crescent or that narrow spot that, uh, where Israel is. The movement would have been known, it would have been reported. Everybody knew they were on the move, but nobody knew where they were going or why. And then one day they move into range of Jerusalem. Who they were was well known and what their influence meant was well known. Therefore, Herod was deeply troubled because Herod was an imposter. Herod claimed to be king of the Jews, but in fact, he wasn't a Jew at all. In fact, he was a descendant of Esau and the Edomites, and that goes way back in a whole other direction that's quite fascinating. But to tell you the truth, we're just not going to be able to deal with that today either. Rest assured that Herod was an imposter who was claiming to be the king of the Jews, but no Jew would claim him. And yet he had the endorsement of the Roman occupying government, and he had worked very hard to win their approval. He was very successful, which is why when you go to Israel to this day, you can still visit lots and lots of archaeological sites that were built under Herod's authority. And you'll notice that they almost always reflect the things you would have seen in Rome at the same time, because he knew who buttered his bread, so to speak. And so nobody could really deal with him because they were unable to conquer him militarily, and yet nobody wanted anything to do with him. And Herod knew this, which is why he built a number of escape route palaces outside of Jerusalem that were about a day's journey apart on the way back to the land he'd come from in Moab. In other words, Herod knew his days were limited. He knew that his authority was questioned, and he knew that at any time his seat could be overthrown as quickly as it had already been on numerous occasions in the past. So he understood the tenuous nature of his situation. Then the wise ones show up. And I want you to hear this very clearly. If you really listened to the passage we just read, you notice that they just appeared before him and said, so where's the king of the Jews? Well, what do you say if you're Herod? Um, right here? <laughs> I'm the king of the Jews? I don't think he said that. I, I think it would have been recorded if he'd said that. He just knew the minute they opened with that question that he had a problem. The Jews didn't think of him as a king, and now the Magi, remember how much you now know about the Magi from Persia. They don't think of him as king either, and they opened by telling him so. So where's the king? We want to see him. From that, Herod gets the disturbing and clear indication that they are not here to see him. Remember, they came with an entourage of no less than a thousand, and 
No wonder all of Jerusalem was disturbed because Jerusalem in those days is a little bit like Washington, D.C. in these days. The inside the Beltway crowd has a whole different culture of their own. The way they view the world is different. Even people who do religion inside the Beltway do it in a different way. And so imagine then that this whole area is deeply disturbed by this arrival. Then notice that when they announce that they are going to keep looking until they find him. Herod says, and I want you to know that if you thought it was a sleazy request, you're absolutely right. When he said, so when you find him, let me know so I can go see him too. Well, you know what? We're all having the same reaction to that question right now that they probably had. Yeah, sure, Herod, we'll let you know. No problem, buddy. We'll, well, as soon as we find him, we'll tell you right where you can find him. Nope. They were warned in a dream to go a different way when they left, but the truth is, is even, even we know that Herod didn't have anything good planned for Jesus when they told him where to find him. But listen to what the Magi did when they found this baby Jesus in the house. They bowed down and worshipped him. Keep in mind that Magi were not the sort of people who bowed down and worshipped very often other people. Now, once they had said, this person is truly anointed to be the next king and great leader, and therefore we lead you people in admiring and revering them and worshipping them, and once they declared that authority given to a certain person of majesty, they would have bowed down, of course. But for the rest of the occasions where bowing to people was concerned, it was probably being done to them more than they were doing it. In other words, people bowed to the Magi, but the Magi only bowed when they were in the presence of kings. And they bowed to Jesus when they encountered Jesus and worshipped him. You don't read any mention of that when they came to the palace where King Herod was sitting. I'm going to guess that that's because it didn't happen. And that's why it wasn't mentioned. And so they appeared before Herod and they did not worship him. They did not bow before him. They didn't acknowledge him as a king because they felt no need to. But when they came to a little house somewhere in Bethlehem, to a mother and a father and a baby, they bowed and worshipped. Understand then that this was as clear a sign as anyone could have seen in those days and maybe right now, that those very wise and learned godly men and all in their entourage were sure that they were standing in the presence of the Son of God. So they adored him and worshipped him and they gave those three gifts. And from those three gifts has come an assumption that there were just three wise ones. But we don't know how many there were and it doesn't matter. Please don't let anything I've told you today ruin your Christmas. Go ahead and sing We Three Kings. It's a great song. But don't worry about it. Just understand that we, for the sake of a song and some Christmas decorations, may have dumbed this story down too much. So just to understand that this is an incredible, world-shaking event that is occurring. It's no small thing 
for this entourage from Persia full of the most revered and wise people known to live in those days. This entourage moves slowly across the land and arrives in a foreign land. Can you imagine looking outside here on 56 and seeing trucks from a foreign army rolling down your streets? You might be disturbed too. In a land that is tenuously held by each of its conquerors, yet it's vitally strategic to all of the various countries and kingdoms around, that's always a sign of trouble. And yet they came to worship a baby king. Their three gifts are best described, in my opinion, by the Eastern Orthodox tradition in a song of worship where it is referred to as gold for the king of ages, frankincense for the god of all, and myrrh for the immortal one who shall be three days dead. By the way, the Eastern Orthodox Church starts celebrating Christmas today. Today on Epiphany, January 6th, that's the first of 12 days of Christmas that the Eastern tradition acknowledges. So right now in Bethlehem, the decorations are still out and the Orthodox Church or the Eastern Church has taken over. I would have to give you a very long lecture on church history to help you fully understand who the Eastern Orthodox are and how they fit into this story. But when I tell you that you should show them a little respect, I hope you will, that the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic traditions that have so much affected the life of the church universal, that they still have something important to tell us and we should still listen to them, even though we may differ on certain doctrinal standards. It would be wise to listen to the Eastern Orthodox traditions related to the coming of the Magi in particular. For what it's worth, the three names that you have probably heard associated, Balthazar, Melchior, and Gaspar, came from an obscure document that has no real validity as a historical document, but then you can thank Lew Wallace, the Civil War general who wrote Ben-Hur, the tale of the Christ, because he names them in his book, and the book was wildly popular, and the movie was wildly popular, I mean the good one, with Charlton Heston, just so you know. William Wilder did a good job, but then somebody came along recently and tried to do it again, and well, you know, that's my opinion. So back to the reality of the message here. I like old movies, if you hadn't noticed. We're going to wrap this up by just pointing out to you that there were three responses that were witnessed in this story. And you may wonder why I built so much into who the Magi are, but maybe now is when it will all start to come full circle for you. King Herod was troubled. He was deeply troubled by what he had heard and seen. And I think I understand pretty clearly why, and maybe you do too now. But you know what the heart of his problem was? His focus was on himself. His focus was on his power and authority and his temporary prosperity and his temporary control over his world. So anything that threatened his sense of peace and comfort 
anything that sensed, that made him feel that he wasn't in control threatened him. And so his response was to find out who the threat is and get rid of him. He had built his entire political career around eliminating those who challenged his sense of control over things. We didn't talk much about the scribes and the Pharisees that were mentioned in this story, but if you think back to what was said about them, they had the facts. They knew the truth. They told Herod what the scripture said about the coming Messiah, but then they did nothing. And if you'll recall back to when I was telling you about the shepherds in Bethlehem, you would understand then that these shepherds no doubt had reported to the high priests and to the priests and the Sadducees and the scribes and all about their holdings because the temple sheep were kept in Bethlehem and these shepherds were employees of the temple. Therefore, you would think that when they've heard from the shepherds that this angelic visit occurred and that there was a baby that was unique and was worshipped by people who had been drawn from all over by some unseen force, and there was, of course, the star, you would think that having financial interests and employees in Bethlehem, that one of them would have made the six-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to check it out, but they did nothing. There's no indication that the scribes and the priests did anything with what they'd heard, and yet they knew exactly what to look for. They told Herod exactly what to look for. And so they possessed the knowledge and the understanding from an intellectual perspective, but their focus was on Herod and politics and society and not on the truths and the source of those truths that they knew. Then there's the shepherds and the magi. They saw, they heard, and they believed. Or I should have said heard, saw, and believed. But anyway, they went at whatever cost to worship the king they submitted themselves to his authority and they were rewarded. What's really interesting about that is that there were the Jewish shepherds who were the poorest of the poor and considered the least in many respects in their society. And they came to see this savior in a cave, laying in a trough carved out of the side of that cave and, and they worshiped him because he was exactly what they were told to expect by the angels in the sky. And then along later come the magi, the wise ones, and they see him in a house. You did pick up the difference, I imagine, that he had gone from being in the manger where the, and the place where the animals were kept to being in a house. Some people make a lot of that. I'm not going to bother today. What I do find interesting is, is that there's a pattern. Because after Jesus' resurrection, people came to a cave to see that he had risen from the dead and wasn't there anymore. And then people met in houses and still are to this day to seek the king. It started with Jews 
And then it went to the Gentiles, both in the beginning and after the resurrection. Herod reveals that fundamental hostility that government is going to have to people with faith. I am not trying to make a political statement. I'm just telling you the facts. The fact is, is when you stand for something, you will be opposed to something else. There's no way around it. And when you represent something that threatens the status quo, especially when you are in the presence of people who are deeply invested in the status quo, then simply by saying what you believe is true, you threaten them. And they will react with hostility. That's the world we live in. It hasn't changed and probably won't change very much at all until the Lord comes and restores correct balance and righteousness. So we have the potential to be like King Herod and to be completely absorbed with our own interests and completely oblivious to the Jesus who's right around the corner. Do you know Herod had him within a couple of miles of him all along? That he couldn't find him to kill him because he had no idea what to look for. Jesus was that close, but Herod was that far away. Or we could be like the scribes and the other religious authorities, and I believe there's a lot of that in churches, who are people that find the truth compelling and interesting, and they enjoy learning about it and studying it, but they are so focused on the leaders and the community and the society and the social things that they simply do nothing about the reality that Christ has come and that he's right there. Or we can be like the shepherds and the magi, and I want to close by just pointing out to you that they are the beautiful contrast that tells us something very important that we all have to know. The shepherds were poor, and they did dirty jobs for a living. The magi were rich, but they were wise. And the magi, though they were politically connected and uh, had a great deal of influence over society, were also willing to keep the main thing the main thing. They gave generously, very expensive and extravagantly, they gave gifts that were that kind of gift. They were not blinded by their own prosperity and their own comfort. And so they and the shepherds basically were the same in their faith both coming from different cultural directions. So the question as you move into this new year as a follower of Christ is, do you want to follow like the Magi and the shepherds? Or are you going to follow like Herod and the scribes? Understand that if you tell people the truth and it makes them uncomfortable, they're probably going to punish you for it. It's not your job to correct them or change them or make them believe. It is only your job to bear witness to what you know. And a shepherd can tell you that he heard angels, and a magi can tell you that he followed a star. He didn't tell you that you had to believe it. He didn't wait until you were finally convinced that you were right and they were wrong. 
They simply told you the truth and they worshiped the king. Let us pray. Well, Lord, you put upon my heart your word and I pray now that it is upon the hearts of your people that only your word is in their hearts and minds and that they are transformed by your amazing Holy Spirit. Lord, help them to worship you and follow you in faith in the coming year. Let them report back in a year that they have been changed forever by the work of your spirit in their hearts and the truth of your word speaking to their ears and coming from their mouths. I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.